Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. you're just joining us today for the first time. Um, We've been going through a series on Cain and Abel. Uh, I typically will do a longer passage of scripture. Uh, We've been kind of hovering or settling in on uh, uh, Genesis chapter 4. And if you're not sure where that is this morning, give you a chance to turn there. Uh, Genesis 4 is in the very beginning all the way back, so if you even grab a pew Bible, you're able to turn there. It's the fourth chapter in of the first book of the Bible. And Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve, the first created beings. And we know from Genesis 1 through 3 that Adam and Eve were created by God. They were um, placed in the garden to tend it, to take care of it. They were to oversee God's created order as good stewards. And uh, they were only allowed, actually they were not allowed to do one thing. And that one thing was to eat of this tree in the garden called the knowledge of good and evil. It bore fruit. If they ate of that tree, God said the consequence would be that they would die. A serpent comes into the garden, begins to tempt Eve, and Eve believes what the serpent's telling her, and she eats of that fruit. And also, so does Abel, or not Abel, so does Adam. They're kicked out of the garden. So by Genesis chapter 4, we have the ongoing story of Adam and Eve. They don't have kids in the garden. They have kids outside of the garden in the fallen, broken world that is now cursed uh, because of what they've done. The first child that was born to Eve was a son named Cain or the firstborn son, if you will. And then Abel was born later. And the story in chapter 4 is a story about the relationship of Cain and Abel and God. Adam and Eve are not in this story except for the very beginning of the chapter. Today, as we come into the context of this ongoing story of, of Cain and Abel, we come to the part that even if you've not been a part of the church before, you've probably heard this, am I my brother's keeper? It's a good question. Are you your brother's keeper? This is something that Cain asked God when God came looking for Abel and couldn't find him, or could he? We'll get there in a moment. And we find that Cain does something that a lot of us, if we're being honest, have done in the past, and that's lie. Came across this illustration this morning. I thought it was, or this week. I thought it was great. So a story is told of this minister who is uh, who's told his congregation that next week he planned on preaching about the sin of lying. To help you understand my sermon, he goes on to say, "I want you to read Mark chapter 17." The following Sunday, as he prepared to deliver his sermon, the minister asked for a show of hands. He wanted to know how many have actually read Mark chapter 17. And every hand in the auditorium went up. 
The minister smiled and said, Mark only has 16 chapters. I'll now proceed with my sermon on lying. Have you ever gotten caught before? You ever gotten caught in a lie? I have. I remember, this isn't to pat myself on the back, I, I, was always, I was one of those kids that was always worried about getting in trouble. So even if I would lie, I would always confess my lie, not too, too long after, because I was worried that I would get in trouble if I didn't confess it anyway, I still got in trouble. There was always a consequence. But, but I, I would get caught. And how do you get caught in a lie? because you have to have other lies to back up that lie. And eventually, if you have enough lies at your uh, disposal, you start to realize that you can't tell enough lies to keep up with the first lie because your story starts to contradict itself. Have you ever tried to cover your tracks? I mean, as students, we would sneak out of the house, right? No, nobody? Okay. Um, I, uh, my senior year of high school, and my daughters, plug your ears uh, at this point. My senior year of high school, I had a fairly light load because I'd gotten most of my coursework done from my uh, freshman year to my junior year. And, and I used to uh, go to school, check in, and then uh, get in my car and take back off again and have the day to myself. And... Uh, and uh, I, uh, there were no, well, I'm sure there were truancy officers, but they never found me and, uh, that I'm aware of. And uh, my parents never knew. There are some things, I mean, kids, when you grow older, and uh, some of you adults out there, uh, when you were young adults and you, you would sit around the table and you'd recount stories from your childhood, your parents would say, I, I never knew that. <laughs> you did what? You ever had those, those stories? right? Um, you try to cover your tracks. Sometimes you do a good job. Other times you do a bad job. But how, how stressful is it to always feel like you have to cover your tracks? You see, Cain's jealousy of Abel in the story uh, in chapter 4 caused him to do some horrible things. But we come to the point now where God the Father comes into the scene again and says, hey, where's your brother Abel? And what's Cain's response? I don't know. Let's look at that story again. We're going to read the whole chapter. Stick with me. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, named him Abel. And when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. God said to him, why are you so angry, Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin's crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go into the fields. And while they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. 
Am I my brother's guardian? Or some of your versions may say keeper. But the Lord said, what, you, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. Who is Cain worried about? The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's a lot in this story. There's a lot we've covered up to this point. The truth of the matter is, why did God reject Cain and his offering? Well, most scholars believe, or many scholars, let me say, believe, that Cain brought some while Abel brought the best. See, God knows the heart of the individual. He knows what you bring to him. And it's up to him whether or not he's willing to accept it or reject it. And as I mentioned last week and I think the week prior, how many of you like getting gifts where people are obligated to bring you something? Like, oh, I had to get you something, so here. Do you like that? Does it feel good to receive that kind of gift? You, you, you would probably say, if that's the way you're going to do it, don't give me anything at all. Right? How much different would it be for God? Or how much the same would it be? If you bring him something because you felt like you were obligated to have to bring it. See, we looked last week too at Malachi chapter, uh, chapter one. And Malachi is talking about the priests who are making these offerings to God on behalf of the people. Well, the people had to purchase offerings to bring to God as sacrifices for their sin. And you know what kind of offerings they were bringing? And do you know what kind of offerings the priests were accepting from the people? They, they were disease-ridden animals. Some of them were blind or lame. See, these offerings didn't cost anybody anything. Those kind of animals you couldn't even give away in that day and age. Nobody would want a crippled animal. And so they were bringing those to God as a sacrifice. And God says, shut it down. I'd rather you not bring me anything. I'd rather the temple doors be shut than you bring me this stuff. I mean, you guys honor, he goes on to say, you honor your bosses better than you honor me. Would you, would you take that to your boss as an offering, as a gift? It would be an insult to take a crippled animal and give it to somebody. Hey, here's a, here's a disease-ridden animal with a lot of fleas and ticks. You want it? Yepper. Well, some of you who love animals would doctor them back to health, right? But for somebody to give you that as a gift, it's more of a chore than a gift. And God says, no, and I want it. Which begs the question then, does God reject what we bring to him? It depends on the heart and how you bring it to him. Does it cost you something? It's a good question, because what you bring to God needs to cost you something. And what you bring to God needs to be given in a, in a heart of cheerfulness and willingness, not, not just obligation, like, oh, I have to do this. And this is what we do sometimes. Oh, I guess I have to go to church. I haven't been in a while. Is that the kind of offering God wants? 
No. Well, I guess I should put, you know, a couple bucks in the offering plate. It's been a while. Does that cost you something? For some of you, a couple bucks might. And it depends on the heart with which you give it. See, there was a lady in the temple when Jesus was on earth, and he had his disciples with him, and he pointed out this widow, this elderly lady, and she gave two mites. A mite, again, I'll tell you again, is a penny cut in half. So uh, if you take half a penny, that's about what a mite would be. And she takes those and puts them in. And, And Jesus says, did you see what she did? See, everybody else is dumping all these coins in out of the abundance that they have. It's not costing them anything. But that lady, she just gave two mites, and that was everything she had to offer. She gave everything, 100%. So what are you giving, and does it cost you something? And what kind of heart are you giving it with, obligation or cheerfulness because you want to please God and you, you love him? Are you giving it out of heart, a heart of love? I mean, that's what this year's theme is about. This year's theme is about love. And as we look at love, love is not jealous. And Cain had this one problem in his life. Actually, he probably had multiple ones because out of the overflow of his actions, his heart really spoke. And what was his action today? Actually, last week, he killed him. Here's the key point this morning. Jealousy avoids admission of wrongs. You can actually juxtapose that jealousy with sin. You're going to replace that word and say sin avoids admission of wrongs. When I do something I shouldn't do, or I don't do something I know I should do, then when I'm confronted on it, what is my response? My response typically is defense. I want to go in defense of myself. Instead of admitting, you know what, I was wrong. Jealousy or sin avoids admission of wrongs. And so what we see in in this one verse of Scripture, in verse 9, are are, are three distinct elements. There's first a question. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother, where is Abel? There's a question. All right, so let's break down this sentence, this verse. Where is your brother Abel? Do you think God doesn't know? That's a good question, isn't it? Because God asked the question. Adam nor Eve comes up to to Cain and says, hey, I've been looking for your brother. You know where he is? No, God comes up to Cain and says, where is your brother Abel? Where's your brother? Why is he asking Cain instead of Adam and Eve? I mean, God's all-knowing, right? I know, God's just toying with us. See, that's what the ancient pagan gods did. If you look at Zeus and and Helena and all these other different Apollos, you look at all the pagan gods of the Old Testament, they would toy with their created beings. They they would uh, use them and abuse them, and, and God must be like that, right? No, God's not toying with Cain. It harkens back, and it's got a lot of strong parallels to Adam and Eve, In Genesis chapter 3, just the chapter before in verses 8 and 9. Mark that down if you don't have it in your notes. Genesis 3, 8 and 9. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. What had happened up to this point? 
At this point, Adam and Eve had partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the one thing God said don't do? Don't do it. And the one thing he says don't do, they do. And we can't relate to that because we're perfect. We've never done anything wrong. But they did, right? And so after they've eaten, God comes onto the scene. He's walking in the garden. His presence is fully there. And what happens next? So instead of going out and saying, hey, God, what's up? They hide from him among the trees. And then the Lord God called the man, called to the man, where are you? You think God was stumped? <laughs> A game of hide and seek. He's a master at this game, right? Where can I go from your presence, O oh God, the psalmist says. If I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. If I go to the highest peaks of the mountains, you're there. Even if I go to the depths of hell, you will find me. So why does God ask Adam and Eve? <laughs> Sorry, it reminds me of Frozen and the, the guy and the Swedish guy. <laughs> okay, and that's how I picture God calling out. Where are you, Adam and Eve? Well, he just, isn't it interesting? He does the same thing in Genesis 4. Cain, where's your brother? See, God knows. Nothing evades God's perception. He sees all. He hears all. He knows all. He knows everything that's in the depth of your heart that nobody else sees. But God's given Cain an opportunity by asking him this question. We do this as parents. Uh, I'll give you a, a brief example. Well, no, that, that's not a good example for this one. I'll hold that off for another time. Uh, as a parent, when you have a, a plate full of cookies on, on your counter and you have four kids at home and you ask, who's eating all the cookies? Or in our case, we get snacks to put in their lunches, and uh, like Swiss rolls or oatmeal cakes, those kind of things. And uh, instead of saving them for their lunches, a lot of times we'll come home or Sara Lee's making their lunches. Like, where did they go? Who's eating all of these? Well, uh, uh, Ian did it. Raylan ate them all. <laughs> Right, so it's somebody always pointing the finger at somebody else. Go back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Did, who told you you were naked? Why were you hiding from me? Um, the serpent gave it to me. Or no, it comes to Adam. Adam says, Eve gave it to me. You're that woman. And she says, oh, well, the serpent gave it to me. So we have this snowball effect of this ongoing, perpetuating, distancing ourselves from our own decisions. Who told you? God knew who told them. God knew exactly who told them. God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were when he called to them in the garden. Where are you? And he knew exactly where Abel was, where Cain's brother was when he asked Cain. You see, oftentimes God asks the question to give you an opportunity for confession. It's not because he doesn't know when he's trying to find out something. 
He wants to know if you're willing to fess up. And we do this with our kids. Are you willing to fess up? Because your punishment may be lighter if you fess up. If you continue to perpetuate the lie, we as parents say it's gonna get even worse. If I find out, it's gonna be so painful for you. So if you wanna live in this lie and continue to perpetuate the lie, I wanna be able to trust you, but if you wanna do that, it's gonna be bad when the truth comes out. But if you confess now, maybe, just maybe. We see we do this in the legal courts. If you confess, we'll give you a lighter sentence. We won't press you to the max of the law. God wants to know, are they willing? When confronted by the prophet Nathan in the Old Testament, this is why David's a man after God's own heart. See, David in the Old Testament, one of the greatest kings of Israel, he is, he's considered a man after God's own heart. In the Old Testament and even in the book of Acts, we read he was a man after God's own heart. But do you know he did some despicable things? He had adultery with a woman who wasn't his wife. Her name was Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And in order to cover up the pregnancy, she call, David calls in uh, her husband from the battlefield because they're all out in the battlefield fighting wars. And he's like, hey, come on in. Uh, why don't you go sleep with your wife? I mean, he didn't write, come out and say it, but he set up the conditions. And the guy wouldn't do it because he didn't feel that it was in good conscience for him to, to be able to have the luxuries that his men on the field didn't have. And so he slept at the gate of the palace each night instead of going home and sleeping with his wife. When, when David realized Uzziah, uh, Uzziah, or Uzzah wasn't going to do this. What, what does he do? Not Uzzah, I'm sorry. Uriah wasn't going to go sleep with his wife. What does he do? He says, dang it, that plan failed. I'll tell you what. Send this message, Uriah, to your commanding officer. I'm going to seal it with my signet ring. And uh, when you get there, he'll tell you what to do. Uriah was an amazing person of integrity because he didn't even open up the, the message. Gave it to his commanding officer and the commanding officer read it to himself and said, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines closest to the most intense battle. And what happens? Uriah dies. In essence, David set up for Uriah's murder so he could cover up his own sin. Do you see what tends to happen here? So Further the story on down, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. She gives birth to a child. Eventually, the baby only lives for a few days. But prior to that, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David, gives him this story about uh, a guy stealing sheep, et cetera, et cetera. It was the only sheep that they had. The sheep would live in the house with them. It was more like a pet than it was a sacrificial animal. What does Nathan tell him? And then these rich people who have a ton of sheep, they didn't even need this little one, take this sheep from this guy, this family. What should we do? And David lays down the law. And then Nathan says, you're that guy. Now David had a choice once he was found out. He could have said, no, I'm not. I didn't do anything like that. And he, he, of all people, could have covered it up. But he could never cover it up from God. And Nathan, as the mouthpiece of God, as the representative of God to David, 
See, David knew he couldn't. And David wept bitterly. Psalm 51 is a psalm that comes from that. Also, Psalm 32, verse 5. Listen to what David writes in the Psalms. Finally, I confessed my sins to you, talking to God, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. Oh, my guilt is gone. And Psalm 51 is this, is this amazing, repentant psalm of David crying out to God through a song. Don't cast me away from your presence, O Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. You see, God comes to Cain, not because he doesn't know where Abel is. He comes to Cain, wanting Cain to confess and say, I did something really bad. In a fit of rage and anger, I killed my brother. But he doesn't. He lies, which is the next one. Cain's response is, I don't know. I almost get this sense, though I can't read inflection into the script on the page, I almost catch him nonchalantly saying, I don't know. As if I don't really care. I don't know. Cain knew exactly where his brother was. More than likely, he was buried in a shallow grave in the field that he murdered him in. Abel's not hidden from God, nor is he hidden from Cain. That's the irony of this situation. Sin begets lies, and lies beget sin. The reason sin begets lies is because there's something bred so deeply within each and every one of us that knows the difference between right and wrong. And when we've done wrong, we want to cover it up and hide it from everyone. So sin comes from deception. Sin causes deception. Sin is deception, plain and simple. Abraham Lincoln said, no man has a good enough memory to make a successful liar. And God gives second chances, even to the worst of sinners, by calling them out to confess. So why did Cain lie? Cain lied because of pride in his heart and the uncontrolled anger driven by jealousy that caused him to kill his brother in the first place. What were the few verses prior to to this verse 9? Where's your brother, Cain? Where's Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Just before that, after Abel and Cain gave the offerings, Cain was rejected and so was his offering, but Abel was was accepted and so was his offering. And God says to, to Cain, why are you so angry? If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. Indicating he was doing something wrong. There was a heart issue. It was black in there. He had allowed sin that was crouching at the door to begin to hold sway over him. And that's what God says to to Cain. Be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to control you, but don't let it master you. You rule over it. You control it, Cain. See, God's giving Cain an opportunity. He's giving him a strict warning, and he's giving him an opportunity. How many times does God give us opportunities? No, 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 don't do that. Don't, you know, there's something in the conscience of each and every one of us that knows whenever we're about to do wrong or we're tempted to do wrong, 
There's this innate sense in us that knows this difference between right and wrong. It's not just some social norm. It is a deep inner unrest. And we have a choice because sin always crouches at the door, waiting to devour us, waiting to control us. Even those of us that think we're the strongest people in the world, sin still waits. And you know, sin has a stronger patience than we do. The enemy, the devil, Satan, has a stronger sense of patience and waiting. He will wait for an eternity to get you to trip up, to get you to take the bait. He'll wait. Can you? Can I? Be careful. Sin crouches at your door. And we have a choice. What happens when we make the choice to do wrong? It's not good. Because if we live in the perpetuation of that wrong, then we will die in our sin and we'll live eternity in hell. You don't hear many pastors talking about that. I'm not trying to tout that, yay, I do. It's, it, I, I wish that it weren't that way. I wish that there was this universal sense of salvation that no matter what you did, you'd end up in heaven anyway. And there are universalists and theologians out there that perpetuate that nonsense, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture actually tells us there's a right and a wrong, a good and a bad, a good and an evil. The evil and bad and sin will separate you from God for an eternity. But if you follow God in his ways, if you live in obedience to him and his word, you'll receive eternal life. It's about belief in his son and following hard after him all your days. It's not a one and done thing. It's not like, whoa, I got saved. Now I can do whatever I want to. Paul actually strictly forbids that in the book of Romans when he's writing to the church at Rome. Should I continue to sin that grace may abound all the more? Because if I've got a lot of sin in my life, then when I get saved, all of that's covered by grace through Jesus Christ. Well, shoot, I want more grace, so I'll continue to sin. That sounds like a winner. Because Paul knew the evil in each of our hearts was prone to give in to that mindset. And he says, no, 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 there's no loophole here. When you sin, it separates you from God, period. There's no caveat. There's no footnote. When you sin, you are separated from God. Now, I grew up in a church, much like this one, Church of God denomination, where back in the day, I got saved every week. Because if I thought a bad thought, said a bad word, even as a teenager, I was down front at the altar every week. Did I lose my salvation by thinking a bad thought? No. We do believe you can lose your salvation, but we believe it takes you turning your back on God and walking away. What it takes to believe and to continue to follow him isn't always easy because that road is extremely narrow. The gate's narrow. The way is hard. But the way to hell is extremely wide. And this isn't in the Bible, but it's always paved with good intentions, right? What do we do? 
Do we perpetuate the lie of sin in our lives and hold back and not confess it because we don't want to look bad in front of everybody else? Or do we let down our pride and say, I messed up. I did a bad thing. I didn't just make a mistake. I knew what I was doing when I did it. And I know it's sin. I know it's wrong. God, forgive me. You see, how would the story you think have gone? This is pure speculation. If God comes to Cain in the story and he says, where's your brother? Where's Abel? And he said, in a moment of weakness, I did what you warned me not to do. You know, the sin that was crouching at the door, I opened the door and it took over and I killed my brother. I'm so sorry. There's no way I can ever get that back. I don't know what to do, God. Help me. You see, I think the story would have been a lot different. I still think there would have been consequences. But he lies. I don't, I don't know where he is. Cain goes even further than just to say, I don't know. See, unsolicited, Cain says, am I my brother's guardian? Which is the next part of this, the last point this morning. So there's a question, there's a lie, but then there's this, <laughs> people that lie are, are really weird because they add more to the story than they need to. Do you, you ever notice this? And again, it's just one of the things about being a parent. You, when a kid lies, they're like, instead of just saying no, no, because, and they fill in all of this detail as to the reasons why something they said they didn't do, they did, but they're covering it up even more. Thou doth protest too much, you know? That's kind of that idea. And so Cain does the same thing. Where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know. And he could have left it at that, but he said, am I my brother's keeper? Not only does Cain lie about his brother's whereabouts, he goes that step further. He denies responsibility for his brother. He distances himself even more from Abel. How should I know? Now, at first glance, we might wonder what's wrong with this, right? Most of us like to keep to ourselves. We've We've, we have enough trouble taking care of ourselves, much less other people. So what's wrong with Cain's response here? Is it wrong for him not to take responsibility for his brother? See, God never asked him, I told you to take responsibility for your brother. You were his babysitter. Where is he? No, he never said a thing like that. It's important to notice that God didn't even indicate anything about Cain being his brother's keeper. There was no indication that God was imposing on Cain anything that wasn't already expected within human relationships. But God never said anything about this to Cain at this point. Cain just offers this up on his own free will. The reason Cain does this has to do with taking any responsibility for his own actions. Ironically, can his brother's keeper uh, Cain was his brother's keeper, even to the point of death. Cain kept his brother in close proximity. Hey, Abel, come with me to the field. 
Do, do you see this, this scenario? He's, he's rejecting his responsibility of his own actions by telling God, I don't know where he is. Am I his keeper? But he kept him close by to the point that it killed him. He was his keeper to the point of death and even enough to dig a grave more than likely or at least bury him in the bushes behind a log or in a hollow. Who knows where he put his body? He took intimate care of the detail of his brother up to the point of death and even tried to cover it up. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. There's something ingrained in each and every one of us that knows that we are to care for one another. Jesus says in the New Testament, he talks about going into the prisons. He talks about giving drinks of water, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry. And Jesus says, when did we do any of that? And he says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And he talks about the opposite of those who, who, who Jesus says, you didn't go to the prisons, you didn't give drink or clothing or food to me. And Well, when did we not do that? Because you didn't do this to the least of these. You didn't do it to me. We are called to be each other's keepers. We are called to hold each other responsible. Why do you think Jesus' last command or commission to his disciples was go make disciples? We have a responsibility not just for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we have a responsibility to the world. And the church skirts its responsibility when it just comes into a place like this on a Sunday morning and does nothing else the rest of the week. You are not just the church a couple hours on a Sunday morning. You are the hands and feet of the Almighty God as you go into the world. Your coworker that's hurting and broken because of a broken relationship, a lost loved one because they've gotten demoted or even fired maybe. What do you do with that? Or your next door neighbor, you realize that their grass is getting taller and you find out they don't have any family in the area and they've been up, laid up with surgery and their spouse can't do anything to help. What do you do about those situations? It's more than just somebody standing on the side of the road with a placard that says, we'll work for food. It's more than just giving a quarter, a dollar, or five bucks here and there. It is a lifestyle, ladies and gentlemen. This is what is, is really coming from this story. It's about confession of sin, but it's about stepping into God's best for you. And the only way to step into God's best for you is to give God's best from you in every situation and circumstance. The difficulty is we get so caught up in doing for ourselves and putting away for ourselves that we are so inward focused that we are no good to anybody else. Well, I can't fix every problem in the world, Brandon. I don't have enough money to fix everybody's problems. And I didn't, it's not about money. Never has been, never will be. You think God needs your money? Yeah, you think the kingdom of God or heaven is broke? It's not like the United States where we're $22 trillion in debt. God has a surplus. There's no way God's kingdom will ever be in debt because God is the head of all of that. 
that we rely on the next paycheck. We rely on the next president or the next change of Congress. We put our hope in things that don't amount to a hill of beans. You know, the enemy does this masterful job of distraction. He did it in Cain and Abel's situation. And he did it in Adam and Eve's situation to get them to eat the fruit. He does it today. You know what he gets us focused on? Oh, Trump and the border wall. Or he gets us focused on, uh, I don't know, Iran and the problem there. And you well, that's biblical. There's prophecy. Okay. Why don't you live for Christ now? Do what you can and stop putting your hope in government structures and all of this stuff. Yes, we live in the best country in the world. I believe that wholeheartedly. We are a blessed people. But when our hope is in our government more than it is in our God, watch out. Because nations have risen and fallen throughout human history. But God's people, truly God's people, have remained consistent throughout. The ones that sit in the pews or were a part of the fellowships in times past, when governments shifted or when persecution got too great, it weeded out the church of those that really weren't true believers. God forbid that would happen today, that it would happen in our society where it would become illegal to own a Bible or where we would actually have to do underground. Would you do underground church if we couldn't meet in a public space? Would you be willing to worship God with the assembly of believers, even if it meant that if you got caught, you'd be thrown into prison or your family might lose their lives? Pin drop moment. See, we, in theory, we, we like to think we would. But would we really? If our back was up against the wall and we had to choose to recant our faith, which means to turn our backs on our faith in Jesus Christ so that we could save our life, would we do that? Or would we say, listen, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm not going to stop being a believer in Christ. I'm not going to stop being a witness of his love and his good news. If they tortured me, would I be willing to continue to do that? If they put a gun to my head, what would I do? What would you do? So we can't fear the one that can take the body only. We're to fear the one, a holy God, who could take the body and the soul and cast it in hell forever. And it's in him that we have salvation. Cain, where's your brother? Where's your brother Abel? God's given us a choice, ladies and gentlemen. He is patient. He's given us time. And some of you in this place today have heard that still small voice saying, why haven't you dealt with this yet? Why haven't you dealt with this sin in your, in your life? Why haven't you confessed this? I know it's there. You know it's there. Why not get it out? 
Let it go. Because if you don't confess it, it's going to continue to hold sway over you. It'll continue to be a stronghold in your life. But if you confess it and you get it out, you know what it'll do? It'll set you free. It'll give you hope. You won't be controlled by it anymore. See, the question of truth and its, uh, of its veracity always looms when evidence is lacking. In the case of Cain, the truth about Abel's absence loomed heavy on the scene when God calls into question Abel's whereabouts. Are you willing to confess? Are you willing to, to advance the truth regardless of what it costs you? You see, Cain's heart was this. He wasn't willing to give a whole lot. He only gave whatever bare minimum he could to get away with it. It ended up getting him in trouble. Abel gave the best. It ended up getting him killed. <laughs> that sounds like a great evangelism tagline. Come to our church, you might get killed. <laughs> Just kidding. But this fluffy, no, this fluffy nonsense gospel that says, if you give her life to Jesus, it's not going to cost you anything. It'll all be good. You'll get more money. You'll get better jobs. I don't recall anyone like that. I don't recall it happening in Scripture. Actually, when God called people into service for him, you see their lives getting much harder but much more fulfilled. Because you realize the world didn't control them or hold sway over them anymore. They were the, under the control of a heavenly father who loved them and said, I will precede you into battle. I will go there with you. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you don't have to fear, fear evil. I'm gonna be right with you. You wanna lose your life, hold on to it. You want to save your life, give it up for Jesus' sake. You can be set free and it takes confession. As our worship team comes forward, I'm going to close out with a few verses. All the way back to Leviticus and all the way up to the New Testament. Leviticus 5.5. 5, when you become aware of your guilt in any of these ways, and Leviticus is full of rules about what's good to do, what's not good to do. When you become aware of your guilt in any of the things that are wrong... You must confess your sin. Psalm 32, 5 through 6. Finally, what's he say? I confessed my sin. I confessed all my sins and, you, and stopped trying to hide my guilt. This is David again, remember? Proverbs 28, 13. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Didn't say they'll receive a big paycheck. All right, what does it say? People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Hosea 14, verse 2, bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of the righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. 
1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Cain, where is your brother? I don't know. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Jealousy avoids admission of wrongs. The sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart, oh God. Before you leave this morning, whatever baggage you're carrying around, whatever sin that holds you down, so you may have been a part of this church for decades and you've had this sin that's holding you back, but you don't want anybody, I mean, it's been years I've held this in, but if I come forward now, then, then the ruse and the, and the, and the reputation and, and this facade that, that I've placed before people will come crashing down. Yes, but then you can begin to live in freedom. Admit your wrong, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow Christ. Don't let a moment pass because you don't know when you step out this door if you'll get another breath. You don't know what the next minute holds. Why, through stubborn pride, would you want to live in separation from God for an eternity? If you want to be prayed with or prayed for, you come to my right, your left, if you want to come down to the altars. If you just want to reckon with God alone, and that's okay too, because he knows your heart, you come to my left, you're right. Nobody will bother you over there. You can pray alone and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in your life. But there's something about confession to one another, that's what scripture tells us, that gets this out, that doesn't allow sin to have control over us anymore. Let's pray. Father, in this place, as we mentioned earlier, Holy Spirit has been a sweet presence here. And I pray that it will continue to be a sweet presence, not only of, of joy and encouragement, but also of conviction, where we've erred in giving you glory in our lives, where we've stepped out of your grace, where we've fallen short of your standard. Forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew right spirits within each and every one of us. Let your revival start in our hearts as we confess our sins, as we get released from the burdens and the weight of those sins this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org 
and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.